Well, grab your Bibles and let's go to Matthew again. This will be, again, a foundation stone, and we're going to come back to it uh, probably next week when we finish this little series. And as I said, what I've decided is this, this series will be something that prospective students are those who want to partner with us. Not everyone will go through the school that partners with Anchored in Truth Missions, but those who want to partner with us will be asked to watch this and fill out an outline of some kind and then give a written statement that, yes, I embrace those truths. I'm committed to that. That's what me and my church or the elders in my church are looking for, and we would like to unite with you, brothers and and sisters. And so uh, you might ask, well, why are you preaching it to us? Well, two things. First of all, you need to grasp these things because it's not my ministry or Tim Seals' ministry or the staff's ministry. It's our ministry. God gave this to us. Uh, We won't today, but probably next Sunday, we'll look at numerous passages where the Apostle Paul just assumed. He, He didn't ask. He didn't discuss it. There was not a vote or committee meeting. He's assumed all the churches he was helping would welcome and support all the mission work and the other churches he was helping. Uh, He'd go like uh, to Rome or wherever he went, and he'd say things like, I'm going to stay there with you a while, then I want you to send me on my way. What that meant was you're going to put me up, you're going to feed me and take care of me, and then when I go out, you're going to give me funds to take care of me as I go help other churches and do other mission work. He just assumed the churches, the church bodies, not just the church leaders, but the churches would help him in that work. So, one of the keys to Anchored in Truth missions is that it's, it's a product of us having to a good and decent degree walked out the truths we teach and we believe. Uh, sometimes people ask, well, why is it taking so long? Because it takes a long time to get a Baptist church there. They don't just wake up in the morning honoring biblical truth. And so now that we're to that place where I think we have... Uh, a sound theology and proven methodology. Now we want to aggressively reproduce these things. And Brother Steve was telling me this week, there's more and more opportunities around the world. And we're getting fabulous feedback from our sermons we're putting uh, in places around the world. And usually what that does is certain pastors and church leaders will begin to hear that preaching and th- say, hey, that's what we want to be a part of. That's, that's what we believe in. We need help. We're kind of by ourselves. And they'll contact us, and before long, we'll have a, a what I might call a mother church in that region that we can work with and then begin to train pastors and support them out of there. And maybe, 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 if you don't go to sleep on me, maybe if you don't coast on me, and I take enough vitamin B, we can have four, eight, 10, 12 of these centers around the world, now listen to me, all centered out of proven, established, biblically, spiritually healthy local churches, which is the only model we see in the New Testament. Nothing we do, nothing I do is unique or creative. It's old, old Bible stuff. For some reason, folks just don't do it. Well, I think I know why. It's easier to do other stuff. 
but the other stuff isn't true and the other stuff doesn't last. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. What a powerful little phrase, verse 36. It's Matthew 9, 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, I've probably failed there. Maybe you would say you've probably failed there too. But how much have we as a church family said, Lord, thrust out laborers and we're willing to train them, equip them, mentor them, and then follow them where they go and continue to support and help them as they face the trials, the burdens, the difficulties of planting or revitalizing churches to be biblically, spiritually healthy churches. God, give us the men, raise them up, thrust them out. Maybe maybe the Lord was waiting for us to get to this point where we can now say we have an adequate training uh, approach to these men uh, and, and a way to properly equip them and then follow up and mentor them as they get on the field. So Jesus says they're like sheep without a shepherd and we need to pray that the Lord of the harvest would thrust out labor. So we'll get back to that as we um, round things up here in a moment. Now, I've entitled this Local Churches in Unity and Cooperation. First of all, every church that's a true biblically spiritually healthy church has unity with every other biblically spiritually healthy church. That's just natural. It's it's amazing how I can go around the world and walk into fellowships like Ali McLaughlin there in Scotland, and I just feel like I'm one of them. I just feel like I've known them for years. We believe the same doctrines. We stand on the same truths. We're trying to function in the same methods within the church. But there is a a place for those churches to formally, officially link together and say, now together we can do more. And again, we won't look at it today, but a week from today, we'll show you how thoroughly the New Testament illustrates churches holding hands and partnering together to continue to help one another and plant more churches. So, y'all know what I do with my glasses over here? So we talked about, first of all, who is the creator of our unity and our cooperation? Well, it's Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go into all of this, but he talked about that he has sheep. He has sheep of the Jewish fold. Then he had sheep of the Gentile fold. He said, but but they're all going to be one sheep, one flock with one shepherd, emphasizing the unity we have with all true believers everywhere. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17 that they may be one even as we are one. He's praying to the Father. He prayed again in John 17. I want those my sheep to be perfected in unity. I think the idea there is I want them to mature spiritually and the fruit of spiritually mature, solid Christians is unity. Very often in churches, we get that backwards. We try to push unity without maturity, and we really have toleration of the flesh instead of spiritual unity. So as we grow and mature, and as individual churches grow and mature, they find themselves able to unite together and serve the Lord. Now, the second thing, not only are we one shepherd with one flock, that was A, not only did Jesus pray for unity, but now we come to, to 
Did I make that? What, what's my second point? Put it on the screen for me. I've used two different forms of outlines here. Roman 2, all right. Roman 1 was Jesus, who is the creator of our unity and cooperation. Roman 2 is the essential pillars of local churches and unity and cooperation. And those are the three pillars there. If we're going to unite with other churches, let's, let's hold hands together and let's train and let's send out these pastors. Let's support them and mentor them around, wherever they are around the world. We're doing that now, quite a bit of it. Then we must know that we are united in doctrine. We're united in the essential matter of spirit's work and the spirit's empowerment. And we're united together on the basic discipleship that churches ought to be involved in. Now, discipleship here is not like personal discipleship, though that must be there, of course. It's more the church's methodologies. We agree on the basic biblical principles that local churches should be embracing. Now, for us, that would include a lot of things, but three of the foundational things would be that we hold to the preaching of the word in the power of the spirit as the centerpiece of congregational worship. We hold to every member ministry through small groups. If any church would say to us, we have no desire to see the body care for, love, encourage, correct, rebuke, disciple one another through small groups, they would say, we love you, but you don't need to be a part of our ministry because you are letting go of a very great essential biblical doctrine of what makes a church a church. So one of the methods, preaching the word and the power of the spirit, the other uh, method is every member ministry through small groups. Another method would be personalized strategic world missions. And I, I've been through this a million times with pastors and church leaders. When I'll give them those three things and show them exhaustively how biblical they are, they'll say, yeah, we grasp that. That's good stuff. But can we do this and this and this too? And I'll usually say, well, that's not necessarily wrong, but are you doing those three things well already? I've been doing this 40 years, and it's about killed me to get those three things done right. Are you hearing me? And I think that's one of the things God's helped us with through the years is we decided there's a few foundational things we must do well, and if we get those done well, then we'll do basketball for Jesus or puppets for Jesus. Not that that's all wrong, but my point is, do what the Bible says we must do before you go to other stuff. And when I tell that to pastors, I've already set them up because they'll never get through with the three to get to the other stuff. You see, we don't need to go to God and say, God, we are so clever. And God, we are so creative. And we are so unique. We can get your work done better than the way you prescribe to do it. I revolt at that. Let's prove to the world God's wisdom is best and God's wisdom is right. And so that's why we've come up with those three, sometimes I call them the structures of grace. There are means of grace, but the means of grace like preaching and praying and fellowship, whatever you want to call it, church discipline, etc. The means of grace need structures to function through. Preaching the word, congregational worship, every member ministry through small groups and personalized strategic world missions. You do those well, you will not have time to get to anything else. And secondly, your church will be blessed and encouraged because you're not running around like a dog chasing his tail about, well, what's the new emphasis this year? What's the new emphasis for the next five years? No, we're, we're, our emphasis is 2,000 years old. It's been there all along. All right, so we're talking about the essential pillars 
of churches in unity and cooperation. And we talked about, and let's elaborate again a little bit, and I'm going to build on a little bit, the, the pillar of sound doctrine. Now, this is one that you'd expect the majority of churches would already have this down. They should already have a solid doctrinal statement that they say they are committed to and hold to. Um, we put a lot of work into ours. It means something to us. It's not a dusty piece of paper in a filing cabinet. We believe and hold to and strive to walk in that statement of doctrine that we believe. Where doctrine just means teaching. Now, I think I said this when we ended last time, but that is the quote, the work of missions should be the object of cooperation among churches and doctrinal truth must be its base. We do not unite together to do missions. We unite around truth and then being anchored in truth, we do missions together. Are you with me, church? This whole, and you'll hear that, oh, we've got to be unified. Well, unified around what? If you disagree with me on essential doctrine, we can't be unified. And that's, as I said earlier, is the reason why we have not for many, many years been cooperating hardly at all with the, the denomination we were once a part of because so many in our denomination are all over the place in their doctrine. Yes, there's some good, godly, solid brothers out there, and I praise God for them. Some of my best friends are, are functioning in Southern Baptist life, but yet they agree with me that we have far too much under this big tent, this denominational big tent of a variety of doctrines that actually contradict one another. How can you do missions together unless you be agreed on the basic doctrines of what who Christ is, what the gospel is, what the conversion is, what the church is? And by the way, what moral absolutes the Bible teaches we're not, we're not, we are not absolutely not going to cooperate with anybody who is beginning to question if the moral standards of scripture apply anymore concerning human sexuality, particularly. We have leaders, leaders, no, the leader, the president of the largest Protestant denomination in the world going soft on whether it's really as bad as the Bible says to be involved in sexual relations with someone of your own sex. How can I do missions with someone like that? Answer my question. You can't. You can't. Doctrinal agreement. Now, look, we're not talking about a 1,001 sign line issues. Okay, you can have a little disagreement on spiritual gifts here and there and a thousand one other things. We're talking about foundational things that matter. Now, here's what you run into. Now, we're talking about cooperating together. You run into, and we have seen it, I mean, over and over and over again, folks that will tell you one thing, oh, yeah, no, we agree with that. Yeah, we stand on that. Then you watch how they function in the church, and they're not standing on it, and they don't function like they believe it at all. So fidelity in true doctrine, and of course, that gets to our third pillar. I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, just a a few quick thoughts on how thoroughly the New Testament talks about we must unify around sound doctrine. For example, just listen to me right now. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul rebukes this young, immature church because they begin to be open to, quote, another Jesus and begin to be open to, quote, another gospel. 
which obviously there is no other. It's, it's a figure of speech uh, as he's rebuking them for beginning to toy with other doctrines about Christ and other doctrines other than the ones he gave them about what the gospel really is. Um, in Galatians chapter 1, he says, there are those who are preaching a, quote, different gospel, and they are, quote, distorting the gospel, and they are, quote, disturbing you. That means they're upsetting the unity. What you saying? If we can't agree on the doctrine that I gave you as a local church, if you've got guys standing up and they're beginning to put a new spin and a new twist on things and, well, it's Jesus, but it's really this kind of Jesus, not quite like the Jesus Paul taught you. And it's the gospel, but this is really what the gospel ought to be, a little different than what Paul taught you. Paul says, get rid of that stuff. He actually goes on to say, let anyone who does that be accursed of God. Anathema, set aside as only worthy of destruction and wrath. Powerful stuff. He's pointing out the importance of unity around doctrine. And in Galatians chapter 5, he says, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Leaven is yeast. You put a little yeast in a big old lump of dough, it will impact the whole lump eventually. And that's why I'm telling you, listening church, that's why when we hear these key denominational leaders in order to get along with the culture and avoid persecution, begin to say these things that we might not want to stand where our forefathers and all the way back to the the men of the Bible stood on moral principles and moral absolutes anymore. And here what what they do is they cloak all of this compromise and this leaning away from Bible truth into a culturally interpretive understanding of truth. They lean over into that because it, they, say, they would say it helps us reach more for Jesus. Oh, really? No, what you're doing, you're distorting the gospel. You're preaching another gospel. And so when people begin to lean that way, listen to me, church, it's, that is the context When people begin to lean away from sound doctrine, that's the context in which Paul said, a little of that will will poison the whole thing. And see, that's what makes it challenging, is that when it first starts, our natural inclination, I think, is to be kind and understanding, give them some space, is that, well, that's not that big a deal. That's the way it always starts. It's not that big a deal, but they never stop there. Brother, you kick open a crack in the door and Satan will sling it wide open. We have to be united around doctrine. Uh, these will be on your screen, 2 Thessalonians three fourteen and 15. If anyone does not obey our instructions, that is our teaching, our doctrine in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him. So notice there can be no unity with those who begin to embrace and teach false doctrine. Titus 1, 10, and 11. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced. Why? Are we supposed to hear everybody in the church? No, we're not to hear everybody in the church. We don't have the First Amendment here. We're to hear truth in the church. Because he said those people who begin to teach these things that are contrary to sound doctrine, they must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. He said, really what they're trying to do is build their own club. They're trying to boost their own ego and gain them a following as, oh, we have insights your elders don't have. You ought to side with us against them. 
No unity. You can't unify if you're not agreed on sound doctrine. Second John 1, 9 through 11, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ means there's a definite doctrine of who Christ is and what salvation is. He says those people, they do not have God. And the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that means the doctrines I gave you about Christ and the gospel, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Again, the whole concept is if there's no unity in doctrine, there's no unity at all. I don't care how aggressive they are. I don't care how many churches they claim they've planted. I don't care how many how much they've grown in numbers. I don't care how enthusiastic they are. I don't care how much they sacrifice. If they do not agree on the doctrines of Christ and the gospel and the foundational doctrines of the faith in general, there can be no unity and cooperation and mission work done together. Thus again, why we many years ago and formerly just a year or so ago said We don't see any future in cooperating with the machine called Southern Baptist to do missions. There's too many contrary points of doctrine. All right, pillar number two. The second pillar of our unity and cooperation is there must be an empowerment of the true spirit, empowered by the true spirit. Now, this is a little more difficult to discern, and it takes some time. But here's one thing I want to point out as we're considering the second pillar essential for unity and cooperation. And that is that these so connect together. And I find this in Bible truth over and over again. We want to organize things and we want to, like an engineer, just lay it out and structure it real nice and neat. And the Bible just don't quite let us do that. Because these so intermingle, though you can discuss them for understanding separately, but they always connect together. For example... Note how spiritual power connects inseparably to true doctrine. The Spirit wrote the Bible that gives us true doctrine. Then the Spirit interprets the Bible to us so we can understand true doctrine. And then the Spirit empowers us so we can live out true discipleship following true doctrine. And that's the third pillar, true discipleship. You see what we mean? You just, they're all together. Now, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 says that we are being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, for there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling. Now, when he says there is the unity of the Spirit and there's one body and one Spirit. Now, the word one Spirit means this is a specific special unity that's created by this one specific spirit. Now, there are other spirits. There's the worldly spirit, and all of it comes under the heading of the Antichrist spirit. But when a congregation comes together, or if individual congregations unite together, there must be evidence that it is the one Holy Spirit that has changed the people in that congregation and that we are seeking to live by his power to do God's work. Now, listen to me. Are you listening to me? (laughs) You got to listen to me because you got to help me do this. 
these pastors are going to come in. They're going to talk to you and you, and they're going to talk to you and you. And here's what they want to know. Do you guys really believe this, or do you just sit there on Sunday while Jeff Nobbit yells at you for 45 minutes? And don't say, hey, it's usually 50 minutes or an hour. It's not just 45. You've got to be able to say as a layman, no, we believe those things. We embrace those things, and we joy in those things. And by the way, you have been doing that, and that's part of the power of the growth of our ministry is that they see the reality in you. It's bigger than just me. It's not my ministry. It's our ministry. So this Holy Spirit has to be doing a work in that church. That is, he's the one who's converting them, drawing them to Christ, and he's the one who's continuing to sanctify them. And only churches that embrace the true work of the Spirit can be in unity and in cooperation. Tongue-in-cheek, one of my son-in-law sent me a, an ad, and I guess churches can, can buy in or pay for or connect to this, this webcast, whatever it is, and you put it on the screens, and you watch the Super Bowl, and you share the gospel together. I'm not here to tell you that Died in the wool evil to watch the Super Bowl at church, though we are never going to do that. But I tongue-in-cheek took that article, that ad, that promotion that my son-in-law sent to me, and I sent it to Brother John O. Sims. <laughs> I can't tell you from the pulpit my nickname for him, but nonetheless, he's quite firm in his convictions on things. <laughs> And then I put on there, this would be real effective if the Holy Spirit does not empower the preaching of the gospel. Here's my point. If you believe that the Spirit works the way the Bible teaches it works, you don't have to do that stuff to draw crowds and build a church. And if you build a church on that stuff, what are you going to do next? What carnival are you going to put on next week to make Jesus attractive enough for your loyalty and your devotion? God says, my word will be accompanied by my spirit to reveal in men them the glories of Jesus Christ and they will begin to love him and treasure him and serve him and upon that rock, I will build my church. Not your bringing in of worldly clever nonsense into God's church. Well, We've been building off Ephesians 4, 1 through 7 as we've talked about these pillars. Now, we're talking about spirit empowerment must be there. Now, we've got to be careful here. Hold on for just a second. When we begin to work with the church, they may be just beginning to grasp a truly regenerate church membership, those regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You and I have been there, amen? It was decades ago, but you and I were there. Do you remember when we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and that's not enough? It's more than that. On our membership role, that gave zero evidence of being born of the Spirit. You know how we know they gave zero evidence of being born of the Spirit? Number one, we could never, they never came. They never came to church. Number two, we knew enough about a lot of them that they were living like they didn't know Jesus out in the world. That's not a spirit-wrought church. That's a worldly church, and that's commonplace. It took us many years to get that in a, in a decent shape of health, if you will, concerning membership. So we have to be careful because there is a false spirit that mimics the virtues of the true work of the spirit. But listen to me, time usually reveals the truth. 
as we've been in fellowship with pastors and church plants for many years now, unfortunately, it's not unusual for us to have a church that we have to part ways with. And we usually were very gracious, we're long-suffering, we talk to them uh, extensively about what's going on and what they're doing because they begin to grab at this and grab at that and run toward this and run toward that, and they're not trusting the Spirit to use the preaching of the Word to build the church. They're trusting their own strengths and abilities and wisdom. And pretty soon there's a parting of the ways, but it took time before it became evident that they were not one of us. Now, the good thing is the majority of the time they themselves pull themselves away because they no longer want to be around us because they're contradicted by our convictions, if not convicted by our convictions. 1 John 4, 1 reminds us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. There's a testing over time of First of all, individual Christians, but also of individual churches to see if they are really of God. Um, One powerful example of how the Spirit can change things, and I'll just read this because it's the illustration of Jews being saved and becoming Christians and Gentiles being saved and becoming Christians. Now, The leftist of our day would like to convince us that there is a radical foaming at the mouth, hatred and racism in our country. Well, as long as men are fallen, there's going to be hatred for a thousand and one different things, including skin color every now and then. And that's wicked and evil and wrong, and we denounce it, period. But there's all kinds of hatred and evil in men's hearts. It would be hard to find any more venomous enmity between two groups than the ancient Jews and the ancient Gentiles. They hated each other. The Jews regularly, not tongue-in-cheek, regularly referred to the Gentiles as the Gentile dogs. Pretty strong stuff. Then some Gentiles started coming to Christ and some Jews started coming to Christ. There were some bumps in the road, but here's what Paul said about that in Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. Ephesians 2, 14 through 18, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh, that's Christ in his flesh, the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and not reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have our access. Here it is in one spirit. See that? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. Only the Holy Spirit can so radically change and reform an ancient Jew's heart that he can put his arms around a Gentile and say, you're my brother more than the descendants of Abraham. And an old, arrogant, secular, ungodly, immoral, perverted Gentile of this day could receive Jesus Christ and his heart be so radically transformed, he turns his back on those worldly and godly evil ways and he put his arm around a, a Jew that he just despised and say, today you are my brother more than my 
Greek and Roman heritage. Only the Spirit can do that, folks. Only the Spirit can do that. And so that's what builds a mature, healthy church when by and large, the membership are those who have had a true regenerating born again work of the spirit. And then those individual churches who are on that track together can unite together and cooperate to do missions together. So just a practical challenge at this point, it has taken me so long to get through these notes. I'm just looking at where I am and looking at the time. Are you looking at the time? Raise your hand. I didn't think you would. (laughs) Folks, this is in my bone marrow. I bleed this stuff. What's in your bone marrow? Do you know the one thing that really matters for time and eternity is Jesus Christ and his church? The rest of the stuff's just filler. Are you hearing me? The rest of the stuff's just filler. You say, what about my family? They're all going to die one day and you're going to be by yourself, but the church will still be here. Are you hearing me? You get to heaven, you'll not be married like you are down here. I know we've got those sentimental songs about we'll all be together in heaven. I don't know if we will or not. Yeah, we'll all be there, but I don't know if any one brother or sister in Christ is more important to you than any other brother or sister in Christ when you get perfected in heaven. I think what it would really be was they're all like your babies and your uncle and your grandmother and your daddy. Everybody would be like that then. Isn't that cool? Have you, did you enjoy going to your grandmother's house as much as I enjoy going to my grandmother's house? Well, every day in heaven, you'll have 100 million grandmothers. I mean, isn't that just the, 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 it's hard to fathom the glories of heaven. So coming down to local churches, and this is a charge to this church, it's a charge to other local churches. What glues your congregation together? What forms your unity? Is it cold doctrine? They're those groups who have impeccable doctrinal statements. They've dotted every I, they've crossed every T of orthodoxy. But that's all they got. They don't have the power of the Spirit. There's not the warmth, joy, and love for the brethren. It's cold, rigid, old, doctrinal skeleton. The life's not there. That's not enough, folks. Is it it denominational loyalty? I'm going to tell you, loyalty to the denomination that's going wrong is a great and vile idolatry. God did not establish the United Methodist Church. He did not establish the Southern Baptist Convention. Those things may be helpful, but when they veer from sound doctrine, we are to reject them and go with God. Is it denominational loyalty? Is it the fear of man? Some pastors are considered successful pastors because they can keep everybody together. But upon closer examination, sometimes you find that they're just skilled at keeping all the power brokers happy. This lady over here, she's a power broker. She wants to do these ministries, so he keeps her happy. This man over here, he's in his pride and ego. He's got his own ministry going, so he gives him blessing, keeps him happy. Then this one and this one and this one and this one. And the really great pastors are those that can, can manage all those different sects factions, if you will, in the church and keep them happy while they're doing their own thing. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. I don't have my own thing in the church. Here's the thing. You don't have your own thing. Here's the thing. Now, you do have elders you're to honor and submit to, but we better make sure that we're following the book and what we call us to do together as a church. 
Is it cold doctrine? Is it denominational loyalty that holds you together or holds a group of individual churches together? Is it the fear of man? Is it extra biblical idolatries, legalisms? You know, there's some great groups who've been together for years. You know what they're centered around? We hold to these seven or eight don'ts and we hold to these seven or eight do's and that's what we hold to. It can be as ridiculous as women not wearing makeup or we don't go to the picture show and all points in between. And they, they unite together around some rules that have nothing to do with gospel change, spirit-regenerated hearts and the life of the spirit bring them together. All of those things, cold doctrine, denominational loyalty, fear of man, extra-biblical idolatries, these are not spirit-wrought unities. So if we're going to connect together with churches and do missions together for the glory of God, the churches involved, each individual church must be striving toward a spirit-wrought membership and must be striving toward a spirit-wrought unity and ministry in that church. It's hard to know sometimes, but time usually tells. We're going to close there. All right. So we've come through this bumpy road of a a presidential election that might be the most bizarre in American history. Things seem to be in upheaval. Some of you would say, yeah, and the Antichrist has taken the throne in Washington. He might have just left it. I don't know who the Antichrist is. We've had a pandemic that's really made things so strange. And quite honestly, I know some of you have suffered with anxiety and worry and maybe even depression. And I I, I sympathize with that. I've tasted of those things. Every preacher I've ever studied and admired went through bouts of depression. I think it's because of the weightiness of what he has to handle. But listen to me. God's work done God's way for God's glory goes on anyway. God didn't save you, and he didn't save me and call me the ministry to fix America, but to build his church. Now, the best way to help America be better is to have godly churches everywhere. Can I say it again? I just say this because it's the denomination I know the most about. But if all 42,000 Southern Baptist church had pulpits that were aflame with righteousness, preaching the word of God without compromise, there'd be so much salt and so much light splashing over, we'd never have to worry about who's running for office. Nobody could be elected that denied God's truth. Are you hearing me, church? The church is the key, but not to fix the culture. We want to have true churches, and when there are true churches, that will help the culture more than anything. And that's what I've spent my life doing. And now many of you can say, that's, Pastor, that's what we've spent our life doing with you. And I appreciate that. So I believe God's brought Grace Life Church and Anchor and Truth Ministries to this last phase of getting the way we equip men. We've been doing this for years already. This isn't new, but now we're doing it in a more structured, effective way. And now we must not grow weary in well-doing. I need, to gird up, I need you to gird up your loins, go get you a vitamin B shot, whatever you got to do, and say, Pastor, let's keep on going for the glory of God. Amen?